This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. If you've been listening to this podcast over the last several months, you may have noticed a common theme pop up a few times. This theme has to do with the word trust. It is not a word that appears in the regulations. I checked this to make sure. Search for the word trust in 45 CFR 46 and see for yourself. Same thing in the Belmont report. Trust, as a word, does not make an appearance. But that's okay. It's not in the Declaration of Helsinki either. In fact, the word is not a common feature in any of the historical documents and codes of research ethics. It does, however, appear in the NPRM. The NPRM, or Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, just in case you are new to IRB regulations and policies, is a pretty big deal. The core federal regulations guiding the way IRBs work and how they make decisions have not been substantially revised since they appeared in 1981. But over the past few years, people involved with IRBs and human research have been debating some pretty significant changes to these policies. And the word trust appears in the NPRM 12 times. Granted, it is a long document, but maybe we are hearing this word more often because it fits where we are right now in research ethics. We are thinking about the success of IRBs and what might make them better. We are reflecting more openly on why some people do not want to participate in research or don't even have access to it. We are trying to figure out how to fit a lot of emerging sciences into an aging set of regulations. So this week, we are going to hear from a few people talking about why minority groups are less likely to participate in research, which is a key example of why this question of trust is so important. There's been a lot of study on this question, and we understand pretty well at this point why people distrust researchers. In our first segment, Giselle Corby-Smith will spell these out. But what do we do? How do we generate trust? This is the big question. And in our second segment, we're going to hear a bit more about how IRBs fit into this trust issue. Is education enough? What about rethinking how we define and talk about benefit? Our two experts today have a few interesting answers to these key questions. These segments come from a panel discussion that was held during the 2011 Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference titled Increasing the Public's Understanding of Clinical Research. Giselle Corby-Smith is Professor of Social Medicine and Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. She directs the Program on Health Disparities at the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Services Research at UNC Chapel Hill and is Director of NC Tracks Community Academic Resources for Engaged Scholarship Services. Margot Michaels is Executive Founder and Director of the Education Network to Advance Cancer Clinical Trials and now Principal at Health Action and Access Consulting. Many people have sort of written about the distrust of research among African Americans, and this distrust is thought to stem from this, a history of racial discrimination and exploitation in this country. The U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee is often held up as the metaphor for ethical misconduct and the reason that African Americans are less likely to be included in clinical research. However, when you talk with individuals around this and when you read the scholarly work, from, particularly from African American scholars, 
We realize that this distrust actually extends back to the enslavement of Africans in this country, the history of medical and surgical experimentation on slaves, the robbery of black graves for cadavers in medical education, and is well steeped in the current fears of hospitalization amongst patients. We know that distrust exists among both blacks and whites in a national study that we did several years ago. African Americans are more likely to believe that doctors would ask them to participate in harmful research or expose them to unnecessary risks. They're also more likely to believe that doctors would not explain research and would treat them as part of an experiment without their consent. African Americans had five times the odds in this particular study of having the highest distrust scores, and these differences persisted after controlling for markers of socioeconomic status. In fact, it's widely claimed that minority groups are less willing to participate in research. And there are several studies, but this is one that I wanted to cite by Wendler and his colleagues, that established that African Americans were just as likely to participate or be willing to participate once eligibility were established. Very small differences by race and ethnicity in willingness to participate in clinical research. I'll just stop here and also note several other studies. Another study that we did with genetic variation research that looks at differences by race and ethnicity and in terms of genomic research. We saw that African Americans were more likely, in fact, to feel that such research would result in higher insurance, not benefit minorities, reinforce racism, and to use minorities as guinea pigs. However, even in the face of that distrust and those concerns about ethical misconduct or the way results could be used, African Americans in that study were also as willing to participate as whites um, in future genetic variation research. My early studies in this work was a set of focus groups at Grady Memorial Hospital, and this quote is sort of keeps grounding me in terms of this research. This African American male when we talked about research participation, said, if I do all of this and it benefits society, given the way brothers are treated in this country, how is it going to help me? I think that quote really speaks to the doubt and distrust about research participation that exists within the African-American community. There's a sense that they're not sure if research participation will lead to improved health for individuals like themselves or the communities from which they come from. There's also a clear awareness of disparities in health and access to care, and these experiences are informing their expectations of research participation. Nancy King, in um, an earlier paper, talks about thinking about benefit and really did a lovely job of parsing out the different kinds of benefit that people within research can expect. She talks about the potential for direct benefit, pulling the winning card in your randomization and getting the right treatment or the treatment that actually turns out to be most successful or most effective in a clinical trial. She also talks about collateral benefits, the benefits that accrue to anybody that's part of a research enterprise, such as free medical care. And then these sort of squishy societal benefits that accrue to others in the greater society that are people that are like you, that no one ever holds investigators' feet to the fire about. We all write them in our consent documents, and it's part of the way we explain our research, and in fact what we intend to happen for the most part in the research, yet there's no accountability for those benefits. 
And now let's hear from Margot Mitchell from a slightly different angle on what role public education and the IRB can play in building trust. I like this quote very much from Victoria Gamble and her colleagues who really talk about how minorities don't feel welcome and respected within the healthcare system and those who do come in have already crossed a threshold of trust and at least with their individual doctor, as Giselle said, sort of weighing both of those issues about willingness and trustworthiness. But she says the medical profession shouldn't focus on making minorities uh, to be more trusting. We need to make sure that we are becoming more trustworthy. And you all as IRB members, I believe, have a responsibility uh, to ensure that your institution becomes more trustworthy. So let's talk a little bit about who is interested in in, uh, cancer clinical trial participation. We know that most cancer patients are not offered the information to make a decision to participate in clinical trials. And as Giselle said, minorities may be as willing but are less likely to be asked. There was some interesting research that went on about two years ago um, out of uh, Southern California in a public hospital that was doing cancer research. And the researchers uh, asked clinical researchers, what do they look for in a study subject, an optimal study subject? And they said, well, we want to find a good study subject. That's why that's in quotes, good. And when they pursued more about what good meant, good meant compliant or appearances of being compliant, not going to be too much of a pain in the rear, speaking English, not being too challenging. So I challenge us to think about, if we only think about good study patients, who are we overlooking and who are we using our subjective ideas to determine who is appropriate? I'm talking about irrespective of medical eligibility. And we know, of course, that even in cancer, minorities of cancer are less likely to be offered participation. And we believe certainly that quality care, which Giselle talked about, quality care through clinical trials is an indication of quality cancer treatment. Looking at sort of the common parlance in the literature and what many of us read all the time is that, you know, community education is really important and critical to enhancing public trust and to get more patients to be interested in participating in clinical trials. I will respectfully say that that is not the case, that we need to be thinking about education coupled with action. And if we just choose to educate in a passive way our community and hope they will come running to us, I think we are fooling ourselves to think that that is going to make a difference. These quotes from very prestigious research studies are really just conjectures. There's not, there are not any evidence behind them. We have done some, some research on uh, the impact of education, which I'm going to share with you in a second. But I do believe that education has to be meaningful and not a passive exercise. Plus that, I want to pose a couple of questions to you. So what does this all mean for the IRB? You all are, are very busy in looking at protocols coming through and improving them for your institution. But how can we ensure that these questions can be answered well for your institution? One, how can we ensure that every eligible patient is offered the opportunity to participate? If you don't know that, if that's not explained in the clinical trial protocol about how that screening is going to take place, you should ask that question. How can we make sure that every interested patient can make an informed decision? We know that assurance of understanding in the consent process is not always happening and that often people are signing things with not well understanding them. How can we make sure that every patient feels confident to ask, is there a trial available for me? And finally, how can we activate the concept of community engagement in our institution's research in a meaningful fashion? This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.